all of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. I am one of the hosts, Greg Farron, and with me, as always, the brilliant, the founder of Rethinking Faith, Josh Patterson. What's up, Josh? Yo, yo. How's it going, man? I'm doing all right, man. How was, how was your day? What's going on? I see right now, if our Patreon feed can see that right now, Josh is drinking a frothy pint. Oh, motherfucker. All right. Sorry. Banksy's going to have to go. He just spilled my water everywhere. <laughs> All right. So we're going to keep this for the Patreon. We're going to restart for the real feed. <laughs> Look at the angry patrons. You're watching his face right now. <laughs> this, there's very few times I've seen Josh with that level of uh, nonverbal angst. <laughs> now I want to watch it myself to see what I look like. Dude, you, 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 had, you had a little bit of a, you had a lip curl. Old- 32 ounce thing of water and got it on my desk. Now it's on the floor. It's on all of my fucking books. There it is. I say we keep, I don't know. Should we restart? <laughs> yeah, we'll restart because if we do this for the main feed, we can't have that. But that's true. This will be in the Patreon feed. So they'll see the, the behind cats. the scenes. Yeah, can't call cats motherfuckers. All right, Marty, we're starting over, pal. All right, here we go. hey welcome welcome i'm gonna restart because i I was already laughing (laughs) all right i'm restarting (laughs) hey welcome everybody again to another episode of rethinking faith i am one of your hosts greg ferrand and with me as always is the brilliant the founder of rethinking faith josh patterson what's up josh how was your day man hey doing good man just uh did some canning at work today and yeah that's about that well i was in the i was in the the uh inward journey second breath class this morning as well oh right that was on, fun. Man. i'm all like i think we only have one left and then it's okay done, which is a total bummer but it's been a blast 
have you dug it yeah i've liked it a lot i totally have liked it yeah it's definitely on my list of things to recommend to people right on right so, on. well that was that was a labor of love and creating the inward journey and uh you know we taught that like in person for like 25 years in our north carolina campus and then just when the pandemic hit we shifted it to a digital format that was still you know engaged live with a facilitated cohort but i'm glad you're digging it man it it uh i definitely think for a lot of people that are in the process of i know i, I the, the word is loaded but in the process of deconstructing and reconstructing i think it is uh it's shifting away from trying to figure out what we're supposed to believe and what is you know kind of a creedal based system uh, which we've talked about before i mean I, I do think one of the the great banes of the christian faith evolution was when we moved creedal which we can take all the way back to constantine and nicene uh but i think that when we shifted uh from understanding it uh as a verb as a way of being as uh following god in the way of jesus and then we shifted it to a uh intellectual system of doctrine that primarily defined who was in and who was out uh it became uh i think in many ways toxic which is something we're going to talk about uh tonight um so so josh and i have uh decided one of the things that we we talk a lot about and uh when we go out and are hanging out with people and talk with folks they have a lot of questions about um salvation you know again they have a lot of questions about soteriology uh which is the this theology of salvation and ultimately what's the meaning of uh jesus's death on the cross why did he die and there's a lot of different perspectives on it uh and uh we kind of want to tonight explore what's tonight for us it might be five in the morning for you but uh listener but uh one of the things we want to explore is kind of the history and evolution of uh, atonement theories and perspectives on soteriology uh, and but then from there broaden out to even even asking that from the angle of uh what is salvation i think we need to broaden it out from kind of the classical perspective not even classical i would just say uh the western uh soteriological perspective to ask a larger question of what is salvation but we'll get there and josh has taught classes on this uh, i've taught this i've given umpteen sermons uh, about this and i think it's important because uh, your soteriology your perspective on uh, salvation and the death of jesus and the resurrection depending on your soteriology uh, it can either radically reinforce a perspective of god that i think is actually inherently dangerous and toxic and uh will create radical internal dissonance uh and uh ultimately theological psychosis uh, <laughs> or or it can lead to uh freedom uh and liberation uh, but to do that i think we need to take it peel back the the onion man and and go way back but uh josh what just as we kind of get out of the get out of the gate on this what are your thoughts why, why are we why are we giving our time and energy to this yeah i mean i think it's um it's an important question and I mean, for me personally, like when I was still a pastor, atonement um, was one of like the things that I focused on the most, I guess. Um, it was like one of my big questions that I was constantly wrestling with. Um, I did a whole bunch of uh, studying on it, you know, self-studying, reading, uh, asking all sorts of different people 
their perspective and and ideas when it comes to atonement um and looking back on it now i think part of why i was so i would use the word obsessed um with atonement theology uh, and also uh, soteriology which they're not the same but they're closely related um maybe had to do with like a need of certainty um that like i had the right one right <laughs> that my uh, my idea of uh you know the correct atonement theory or something like that uh you know i had to have it right that way like i could go to heaven when i die or something like that so it was like it was purely spurred on by like this deep need for certainty um and uh yeah so i i wrestled with it for a, or a long time um i mean we did like a series on this podcast back when it was called theology doesn't suck um just about atonement right we did like three episodes um back to back to back about it um and so it's a question I think a lot of people still ask and wrestle with, and especially when you get into like the deconstruction world and you start breaking down some things like, for example, uh, you get rid of the idea of hell. Okay, now what? Right. Or you start interacting with ideas of nonviolence and taking seriously that Jesus of Nazareth um, sure really seemed to promote a strong ethic of nonviolence. And if Jesus is the, you know, perfect revelation of who God is, then like, what does that say about God? That starts to throw wrenches into your atonement stuff. Right. Um, so there's, there's all these different things or, or, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe you have a friend or you make a friend who is a uh, Muslim uh, or Jewish or Buddhist or what Zoroastrian, whatever. And you're like, well, these people are really awesome. They're fantastic. Their life expresses the fruits of the spirit. What do I do with that? So like, there's all these things that kind of start to shake those grounds. And so I think people within the, the deconstruction fold are also still asking that question. Um, what is atonement? What is it that Jesus accomplished on the cross? Did Jesus really have to die? Like those kind of things. Uh, what do we mean by salvation? Like, I don't know. So I think it's just, it's a live, it's a live topic. And yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully that <laughs> got at something uh, that you're trying to pull out of me. <laughs> yeah, right on, man. That's it. And I think, uh, you know, I remember for me, uh, back when I was an evangelical, uh, I was in seminary in the late 90s. And then I went through my ordination process in the PCA, which is Presbyterian Church in America, a very, you know, conservative uh, Presbyterian denomination. And I remember through my ordination process at my exams, I mean, you literally, in my particular presbytery, you literally had to say the words substitutionary penal atonement. Like if you did not hold, and you actually had to believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Uh, and be, because within that system, if there wasn't a literal Adam and Eve that ate the fruit that caused the fall, then what was the point of Jesus? Like everything kind of hung in this literalist uh, system. And it was, of, of course, then born from, the Reformation, particularly Luther and Calvin's perspective on uh, salvation, and this idea that uh, you know we we are sinful uh, and we uh, need to be justified, and that through believing, if by faith in Christ uh, we are justified, not you know we are forgiven and justified and made whole, and there's all like the illustrations of 
that God's the judge and Jesus is the, the lawyer that gives us uh, his, you know, uh, record or his resume or all of these things. And, and it, it, it and it was this uh, system that was so uh, rigid uh, and that inherently was in and out inside and out. But what I didn't know at the time okay, now, and I, and I went with it at that time for my ordination exam, the, a literal Adam and Eve. I mean, I didn't think it was like 5,000 years ago, but you know, it was a literal Adam and Eve just didn't make sense to me, but my need for belonging and also my need for employment uh, was so strong, you know, that I didn't really give it a, a, and plus two, this also was my community and they had loved me. They had paid for my seminary. They, I was working at a church. They paid, I had a manse, a house, a salary, like it, it was my future, my trajectory. So on one level, you know, I, I really have grace with myself when I go back to that time, because it wasn't just that I was greedy and going to sell my soul, but I thought, well, you know, these are smart people and, uh, you know, Lutheran Calvin were smart. And so, and, and I'd been taught not to trust my own judgment because I was inherently you know, fucked up and my heart is deceitful above all things and uh, wicked above all things. And so within the system, I'd been taught to not trust myself. So I just thought I'll just go with this. Uh, but as I started, you know, diving deeper uh, into exploring it and beginning to feel some of the inherent tension uh, of the system, it was just helpful for me to realize that this whole notion of substitutionary penal atonement, which is Jesus is the substitution for us that takes our punishment uh, so that we won't have to face the punishment and then we can get justified and go to heaven that that's a relatively speaking historically that's a new kid on the block like no one believed that for the first 1500 years of church history no one believed that uh especially with the idea of justification uh we go to we'll get there but uh in terms of the clear way it was defined uh during the reformation but you know one thing that really struck me that i found so interesting when i went back and started studying uh atonement theory was that pretty much for the first thousand years of the church uh the majority of the belief in the west was that the world was the devil's territory and Jesus died to pay off the devil, not to pay off father, the Father God, Father God, but to pay off the devil, that anyone that was sinful belonged to the devil. And so Jesus, and, and this is actually what was represented in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. St. Uh, C.S. Lewis was representing this, that if you remember in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund had betrayed his family and belonged to the White Witch. So then Aslan went to sacrifice himself to the white witch, not to God, but to the white witch. And, uh, and that was pretty much representing this theology that most people held for the first thousand years. But th this is the wild thing in that theology is that, that Jesus died for the sinner to pay off the devil because the sinner was the devil's territory to pay him back and get him out. But then the tricky part is if you remember in both in, in line with your wardrobe and in this uh atonement theory is that then jesus tricked the devil because the devil didn't know about a deeper magic deeper magic is what it's called in c.s lewis but uh the deeper magic was that if you kill an innocent uh that they'll rise from that, that you can't keep them dead and so the whole thing was a big trick on the devil that jesus paid the devil but three days later resurrected to the devil's great shock and surprise and tricked him so that jesus got to rescue the sinner and resurrect and that that is what most people believed in the western church for a thousand years uh, and then it was anselm 
uh, St. Anselm around uh, the uh, around year 1000, around in that time where he didn't really like that theory so much. And this was the time of fiefdoms. This was a time when uh, the idea of kings and vassals uh, and subvassals was beginning to evolve uh, in Europe. Uh, and and pretty much in the vassal system, you had a king and the vassal, and the and the vassal could might be a, a minor king or a lord, and their job was to pay uh, money, to pay crops, to pay honor to the king. Uh, and so this was the system inherent around the time of Anselm. So Anselm wrote a letter, and uh, proposed a new atonement theory that. Uh, that it wasn't that we're paying the devil, but we're paying God, that God is due honor and that we as vassals don't have enough honor to pay the king. But Jesus had bukus and bukus amounts of honor in overflow. So in faith in Jesus, we're giving the extra honor to pay to the king, God. Um, and so that became the new theory that caught fire in Europe uh, and became a dominant uh, atonement theory uh, within Europe. Now, by the time of the Reformation, and I'm just nutshelling this because I think we can leap off of it. By the time of the Reformation, there was so much corruption in the church that there that people were so sick of uh, bishops and church leaders that were utterly corrupt and taking bribes and doing all this crazy shit. That by the time of the Reformation, the issue wasn't honor to the king; that it was justice. That they they, they wanted justice and righteousness. So then, this Anselm's theory then was. Uh, kind of evolved and nuanced instead of paying honor to the king that we are paying uh, justice and righteousness to the king because that was the need du jour, right? That was the need during Reformation. So they came up with the, the penal substitutionary atonement, which was that Jesus died to make us righteous. So the whole thing in the, the, the cultural moment was righteousness. So one thing that strikes me as we go through the evolution historically of atonement theory is that it always evolved out of a cultural moment, that our theology is not going back to the pure Bible. And what does the word of God say from on high? And we have these divine insights of infinite uh, wisdom, but that our theological perspective is always defined through our cultural moment and through our uh, uh, cultural perspective in that moment based on our deep needs. So in, in Anselm's time, it was defined uh, by this uh, perception of the evolution of order that was revealed, that, that brought order to the chaos of Europe with kings and vassals. By the time of the Reformation, it was about righteousness and fighting corruption. So they came up with, we receive righteousness. And I think the danger is when we actually think that this is what the Bible says, or this is, you know, what the, and what I mean by that is this is the one truth of God. Like in my PCA ordination process, it was penal substitutionary atonement as defined by John Calvin. And if you didn't believe that you could not get ordained because this was the one way with no acknowledgement of the subjective, uh, evolution of it c.s lewis calls that um backhanded subjectivism when you actually think you're objective about something and the reality is no one's objective about anything that we, that, that that we are all subjective and the worst case in the world is when we actually think we're objective and right um and so uh, that that's just kind of a and since since the time of the reformation there's so many more atonement theories and so many more soteriological perspectives but just to kind of give a nutshell of the evolution 
of atonement theories through history and nested in a reality that it's always evolving from a cultural moment based on emotional need and also just the basic needs for uh, security and identity uh, and some sense of control and power and 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 this this idea of objective an objective perspective on scripture i think is dangerously and inherently um toxic honestly yeah no i think <laughs> i think that was a good nut uh good nutshell to use your uh, phraseology well done um and i think it's a good a good point that you're drawing out there and it's actually it's one too that um uh, Trip Fuller makes in his uh, his little book on on Jesus. Um, he actually talks about Anselm, um, and you know the whole feudal system and and how that worked out. And try to be fair to it because Trip is not a fan of uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, but he was basically trying to make this point that Anselm during Anselm's day offered a beautiful depiction that made sense within Anselm's framework. Um, but today, uh, I mean, some people might argue this point, but like we don't live in a feudal system uh, per se, in theory. <laughs> uh, we still very much have hierarchy, but it's not the same, right? Because the way Anselm's theory worked basically was like um, <clears throat> within Anselm's day, uh, you had like a, I don't know, a peasant like you and I, um, if we sinned against each other, then like the penalty would be what one thing but if i was to go as a peasant and sin against a king even if it was the same thing i did to you like if i stole your loaf of bread uh the punishment for me stealing the loaf of bread from you versus me stealing it from a king would be infinitely different because now the king is at a different tier a higher level um and so for anselm he said it's the same with god right us puny sit little you know worm sinners we sinned against an infinite being. And so our punishment must be infinite. Um, and that's, you know, Jesus luckily uh, could fix that for us. But anyway, Trip like made a really beautiful depiction of that and showed how it fit culturally. Uh, but then he jokes that um, penal substitutionary atonement uh, was John Calvin taking Anselm's theory and just making it worse. <laughs> um, uh, which is interesting. But yeah, I think for me, and I mean, at least in the experience, too, of talking to people, PSA is one thing that is very uh, common and popular. I mean, if you grew up evangelical like I did, um, that's what you're grown up being taught. And, and But more than that, you're taught that penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel. They're conflated as the two. So now this atonement theory, which, like you pointed out, is a new kid on the block, becomes conflated with the gospel right? And there's really good, you know, uh, Bible scholars uh, who are far more conservative and evangelical than uh, we are that have done work on this to show like these two, we can't conflate them. I'm, I'm thinking of Matthew Bates, um, who's been on the show before. He's fantastic. Um, his, his books are really helpful. He kind of breaks this down. Um, but yeah, I think that that becomes dangerous when we think about PSA, what I just talked about, the conflation with the gospel, but also um, I think penal substitutionary atonement uh, can be used as a tool of the, uh, of the oppressor. Um, and, and even, you know, we talked to Angela Parker recently and she talked about how the doctrine of inerrancy um, has been used as a tool of white supremacy I would go far as far to say that the the um, doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement 
um, can also be used as a tool of white supremacy, right? Because it focuses focuses solely on the sinner, the one causing harm, right? That's what it's about. How does that sinner be forgiven? Um, and like we talked with our friend Jennifer Garcia Bashal, and she pointed out how, what about the sinned against? What about those who are are being screwed over? And so, of course, when you have a, uh, an atonement theory that was developed by the white educated males of society, um, they're going to make an atonement theory that covers their ass, right? <laughs> As the people on top, right? Uh, the sinners, the, the ones who have slaves and um, like treat women like shit. And all these sorts of things. Um, of course, you want an atonement theory that like makes you feel good as a sinner. But what about something for those who are sinned against? What about the people that Jesus hung out with? Uh, the, you know, underbelly of society, so to speak, the the outcast. Um, what about the fucking people of Israel, right? Who are an oppressed, oppressed people group? Like <laughs> the Bible right. is written by an, an oppressed group of people, not by the the, the powers on top. And so it's just, to me, it's just ridiculous um, or silly. And I mean, it took me time to see it, uh, but things like PSA that only favor the sinner. Um, That's right. That are, are just, dangerous. I, I, and just to double down on that, just, just recently I put a post and, you know, one of the things I had to recover from was this notion that, uh, and it's, it sounds humble. Uh, at the time, but that, you know, look, as, as Calvin said, because, you know, remember a long time ago, I was a five point Calvinist and inherent as that is total depravity and you don't trust yourself that you are uh, sinful. It, the, the, the water's poisoned. Um, and so the primary way of the gospel is to acknowledge that how sinful you are um, and to point at anyone else to, to, to point at anyone else is called, Hey, look, you know, just, and they, they highlight that verse, like, look at the own plank in your own eye before you put a, a look at a speck in a dust in, in anyone else's eye. So inherent in that theology and leaning on that perspective, you don't get to ever say to anyone else that's wrong or don't do that. I mean, you might be able to say that, but you have to ultimately say I'm a bigger sinner. And and what you're describing is that it's almost codified in the system that you can only look at yourself as a sinner and there's no place for saying that's wrong that's that's not just that that is oppressive and sinful there's no place to rise up and and speak against because inherent in the system is if you rise up and you're against you're being arrogant um and it's complete horseshit and which again i think is to your point josh that the system evolved uh from the powerful and and that's what strikes me again and again and again all the way going back to constantine that that we put jesus into the very system that he was trying to upend that he was trying to subvert and i think that in many ways organized religion throughout the centuries has done that again and again and again that we have placed jesus into the very system that he was trying to subvert um and 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 penal substitutionary atonement uh, I think has certainly been weaponized uh, to do that. And also just and, and on the side on penal substitutionary atonement, how I think inherently, and I'm going to say how inherently dangerous and fucked up it is. And and I know that we say fuck on this podcast quite a bit, but I mean, I really, really mean it uh, in this particular context that if you have a God that 
on it with one hand is hugging you and telling you he loves <clears throat> loves you but with the other hand is holding a dagger and saying if you don't believe this particular system of doctrine i'm going to torture you in conscious eternal punishment uh forever and ever and ever that's that is that creates such an inherent eternal dissonance that is a psychotic god that is you you might be able to say god loves me jesus loves me but if you believe in that atonement theory then i know that psychologically in, in an embodied way uh you you are going to be disrupted you're never going to unbrace you are ultimately going to be watching out to save your ass uh, because you don't want to be uh, thrown in hellfire. And I remember this was when I was in Reformed Theological Seminary back when I was a five-pointer. Uh, that was a, 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 a one of the professors there. And he taught, I remember there's this class, and this one student was asking, this is so fucked up. This one student was asking the question, you know, look, if I'm in heaven and I know my mother's in hell, how can I possibly be in any good space of rejoicing that and and to be able to be in bliss that I'm in heaven, knowing that my mother, whom I love, is in hell, uh, and it was uh, Sproul, R.C. Sproul, the professor, uh, who said to him, with great righteousness and assurance, "Let me tell you something, son. When you're in heaven, you're going to be praising God that your mother's in hell." And I just thought, what an insane line of horseshit. I mean, I just thought. You know, that, that I mean, you have to create such a radical separation of the head and the heart. You have to create, you have to utterly distance yourself from anything experientially loving uh, to say anything like that, to say that the God's righteousness is so great that you're going to be overwhelmed with righteousness, that you're going to be praising God, that your mother who gave you birth is in hell. And that's the kind of insanity. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of psychosis that if, if you believe in that, I'm just, there's an invitation to co congruence because and just acknowledge the psychosis inherent in the system uh, because I think it is so dangerous. Uh, I'm sorry, that was an aside. But back to the oppression piece and 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 since the Reformation, there's been many more uh, atonement theories and kind of an evolution in soteriological perspectives. And I don't know, maybe Josh, I know you've taught on this. If you may, maybe just give a handful of nutshells of some of the uh, the atonement theories that have evolved since then, and then we can kind of pop it off of the existing perspective nested in the Platonic uh, view of the the perfect heaven and sinful hell. Which I forgot to get into the why we got there in the first place, even with the the the, the person being sacrificed to the devil. We can get back to that, but I think that then we can just talk about the broader concept of salvation, maybe nutshell some of the different atonement theories since the reformation. Yeah. So I think, um, well, one thing that comes to mind too, that I just want to, I mean, PSA is so easy to pick on, <laughs> which, uh, is mean to say, but it's true. Um, but one other thing I wanted to point out about PSA that I don't like about it is that it, it, uh, justifies the myth of violence which is so popular in our, our culture and society today that like to solve violence, you just use more violence. Um, and it just, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't reconcile. I, why? Well, yeah. It's just, it's too much. I, like you pointed out, love and words don't mean anything. Um, 
when we believe in a God who is <laughs> the God presented by PSA and people like John Calvin. Um, but just the the myth of sacred violence and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, which is a nice segue into, I think, one of the most uh, prominent things. And it's still, I mean, being talked about today uh, has to do with scapegoat theory um, and atonement. And Jennifer Garcia Bashaw wrote a beautiful book about scapegoating. It's not part specifically about uh, scapegoat theory in realms of atonement. Um, but scapegoat theory is one that's really popular. Um, <clears throat> it was made. So Rene Girard um, is kind of who uh, it's based off of his work. He didn't necessarily create an atonement theory, but people took his work and, and, made one and and the it's a lot to explain but the gist of it is that um it involves mimesis so like gerard was a scholar who studied um different like literature and text and kind of discovered this pattern um within writings across history um all sorts of writings basically uh people uh, there's a society, people see something that they want, it leads them to become jealous of other people, they want to imitate that, uh, that uh, causes a means for uh, violence, and then the society in order to continue needs to blow off that need for violence, and so they find a scapegoat, somebody to blame, and then they kind of put that violence onto the scapegoat, um, and it kind of appeases society for a little bit. Um, it's easy to see, you know, within our situations today, uh, people that get scapegoated within America, for example, uh, let's just take right now, uh, Muslims <laughs> are scapegoated, right? Uh, the LGBTQ community is scapegoated. Black people are, or anybody who's not white is scapegoated, <laughs> um, you know, whatever. So we see it. It's a very normal thing that we see happen. And what Gerard noticed was different about um, the Bible is that the scapegoat mechanism still functions within scripture. However, the Bible is written from the perspective of the um, oppressed, not the oppressors. And so there was something different. And then the Bible, like most of the time when people write stories about a scapegoat, they justify why that scapegoat needed to be killed, right? They at least give a good reason good in air quotes for people who aren't watching this. Um, and what happens in scripture though, is, is, is the opposite. Uh, they intentionally set up Jesus as innocent, but Jesus is still scapegoated. And so Jesus is the scapegoat to end scapegoating. Jesus breaks the system by becoming the one that is sacrificed, showing the system how silly and stupid it is. And then, you know, overcoming death. Um, so that's kind of how that works. And then the idea is then like, how do we go out and find the scapegoats in society and stop creating scapegoats? Um, because God didn't want that in the first place. So that's scapegoat theory in a nutshell. Um, you know, a Girard scholar or somebody much smart, smarter than me would correct probably a good bit of what I said, or at least nuance it. Um, but people just go read about Rene Girard and scapegoat theory. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an expert. Um, but yeah, hopefully that that made sense. So that's that's one. And then also, I mean, it's hard because they're not necessarily atonement 
theories, but there's different ways of talking about salvation. Uh, like liberation theology is one thing, you know, with people like James Cone and Howard Thurman. Um, that brings, you know, their own perspective into the mix. And then also, you know, within the open and relational world uh, and process thought, you know, the kind of people that I like to hang out with, um, people tend to be kind of skeptical of this idea that like sacrifice was needed or something like that. Um, and so they actually place the salvific part of the whole Jesus experience within the incarnation. The incarnation I, is itself where, yeah, salvation takes place. But And I think that's a really good leap up point because, and just, and this is where I think we can go back uh, to presupposition to assumption. So one of the things that's, you know, as, as we know, and, and this can kind of nuance into what you're, you're talking about, Josh, um, I just unplugged my computer. Um, this goes back to what you're describing, but, you know, when we, we always say everything's paradigm, uh, that, not, that again, backhanded subjectivism, nothing is objective. We're all viewing it through our particular lens. And when the message of Jesus, when the gospel started flowing out uh, from Israel, of course, it went in every direction. Um, and it, it entered into different cultural uh milieus and perspectives so and, and and then people heard this message and then interpreted it through their particular lens and so th this is a little bit slightly heavy-handed in just that I'm, I'm trying to describe it in two categories of east and west but when when the message went west it primarily went through rome and rome was profoundly uh nested in greek philosophy which was profoundly influenced by plato and plato had this perspective of the platonic ideal that this ephemeral spiritual purity that what was a spiritual was pure and holy and then what was physical was inherently corrupt um and so when the, this message of jesus encountered uh, this uh, Greek Roman Western philosophical lens, then it very easily led to, and for for our recovering evangelicals, our ex evangelicals, you might have seen the the bridge illustration where here's the sinful person and here is God and the cross is the bridge to get across. Right. Well, that is one hundred percent out of Plato. Uh, that that here is the the the, uh, the platonic ideal and we are the corrupted physical and through jesus uh we, he's created the bridge for us to walk across that the, the, from corruption into uh purity um and it fit perfectly uh into that uh uh philosophical perspective because that's what happens all the time uh just as anselm just as calvin and luther uh, reinterpreted uh, the gospel through their unique cultural moment. That's exactly what happened when the message met Rome uh, and the Western perspective. Now, when the message went East, uh, it, it's very different cultural assumptions. Instead of soteriology, the emphasis in the East was not so much uh, this, this bridging the gap between uh, the, the spiritual and the physical, uh, and also at that point, um, what had happened in, in Greek philosophy and what was the big debate was the eternality of the human soul. And so you, you blend platonic thought with the eternality of the human soul. Now Jesus saves us for all eternity. And most of what's happened in the West is soteriology 
is about an evacuation plan for the next life. Like how do, in, in the words of Brian McLaren, how do we get to heaven? But in the in the East, it was a, a very different perspective. The emphasis was not soteriology; it was sophiology. It was it was a, a perspective on wisdom, and how do we live fullness of life now? Which was the uh, cultural assumption and and perspective of those in the East. So in the East, the emphasis never became how do we get to heaven when we die, but that Jesus became a, a wisdom teacher. He became a guru uh, of living to fullness of life in this life. Um, which again is just very helpful in acknowledging uh, that nothing's objective, uh, that it's all e evolving, and and so it doesn't mean that the East was right and the West was wrong. It just means that we acknowledge the differences, and there are inherent dangers and inherent beautiful things uh, in in both evolutions. But we have to acknowledge the most dangerous thing is to say this is the right way and not acknowledging kind of this evolution. So, which then takes me to your point, Josh. Uh, as you were talking about liberation theology, and then we can get into uh, uh, feminist theology and womanist theology and, and all that's evolved gorgeously since then, we have to then back up and almost all the questions when we talk about atonement theory in the West is inherently locked into the platonic perspective. Uh, and so we're and so we're we're drawn to the conversation magnetically through platonic assumptions, which means that it's about how do we get to heaven? Uh, that salvation is inherently about how we get to heaven. And we just need to back up off that, acknowledge that as a presupposition, an assumption that does not really uh, define the actual landscape of define, talking about salvation. Uh, that salvation can be very, very different and nuanced. So I say all of that to, to invite us now, as we talked about at the beginning, to begin to explore then the bigger question of what is salvation. Um, and uh, not negating. I mean, the reality is I'm an Episcopal priest. I've done so many funerals. Uh, I've, I've walked people to death. I've been by the bedside on, as so many people have passed away. And uh, there's always a question that people ask me, you know, what happens after we die? And no one knows. No one knows. None of us have been there. Now, I will say this. One of the things I've learned in that space, and I have seen, I have, I will say this, this is way off topic, uh, but I, but it's worth saying, uh, I, I will say this, I've been with so many people when they're dying and I've seen so much amazing, so many amazing things happen on deathbeds. Uh, for example, just one quick story. There was this one woman in my parish uh, and she, for many months had been kind of going in and out of consciousness. Uh, and uh, towards the end, uh, as, and you and and when you're with people a lot when they're dying, you can begin to see when it's getting close to the end. It's it's something you pick up. I don't know whether it's energy or whether the look of the skin or whether the way they're breathing or something in the eye. Uh, but uh, she was coming to consciousness, and she kept describing that uh, she was seeing and interacting with all these people who had already died. Uh, and and then she, towards the very end, she was saying she would open her eyes and she was having a hard time seeing who was actually physically in the room and who was already dead in the room with her because she couldn't discern the difference between these loved ones. And I remember the last time she woke up, the last time she woke up before she died, she sat up in bed, she's as coherent as could be, and said to us, she said uh, about these people, she said, if they ask me again, I'm going to have to go with them. Uh, and then that uh, a few hours later, she died. And th there's so much that I've seen in that that I, I really can share stories of comfort 
Um, but I also acknowledge internally that 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 none of us knows uh, what happens in the afterlife. Um, but but I do think uh, so. I'm not negating. I'm not negating the idea of eternality. I'm not negating the idea of heaven. I'm acknowledging my limited understanding of it. I sure as hell hope that uh, uh, most days. I hope that my consciousness continues and that we are then completely reconnected with the divine in a way where there's no more sense of separation. Uh, but I do believe inherent in the concept of salvation, it's not just for the next life, but it is for now. And again, the concept for the next life is uh, what you were describing earlier, Josh, is such a, a power over dynamic of the haves, not the have nots. Like the haves are digging life. We're cruising along. Uh, and, and then look, and then we die, we get to have extra halves, you know, we get to have everything for all eternity. Uh, and, 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 and this is why, uh, Karl Marx called religion, the opiate of the masses, because he was saying that we were taking our understanding of theology and saying, look, you oppressed, stay oppressed, but don't worry in the next life, shit's going to be great. But for now, be a good citizen and do what we're saying. And that's also why Nietzsche said, uh, Christianity is a religion of slaves. Um, because it was promoting this ideology that you should live small now and suck it up while the powerful got to enjoy themselves. Um, and he was saying rebel, you know, uh, against uh, the man. I mean, push against the, the systems. And so it, it begs the question, not, not negating the idea of salvation as the next life, but at adding in addition to that what is salvation now what is salvation in the present tense and what does that mean for us yeah dude there's <laughs> there's so much there that i want to comment on so i will be limited in my commenting and then uh try to get at some of the salvation stuff or i might actually ask you a question first before we get into the salvation stuff um but i think one point that you made that i just really want to drive home and point out um, is that a lot of uh, Christian theology, or at least within the evangelical tradition, um, and I think just in general, actually, I think I can be more generic with this, is deeply influenced by ancient Greek philosophy. Like so much of it is ancient Greek philosophy that we then read into the pages of scripture. And these are the, you know, I'm not picking on anybody, but these are the same people that say we got to read the Bible literally, you know, whatever, you know, the evangelical, like inerrantist, this kind of stuff. But their their presuppositions about God are not biblic biblical. They are Greek philosophy, <laughs> like the idea of perfection. Right. So where we get the omni God, the um, God is omnipotent and omniscient and all these kind of things. That is a Greek, ancient Greek philosophy understanding of what perfection means. And then that is applied to God. And then we read that into the text, um, which is, I think, one thing that uh, open and relational uh, theologians have been trying to point out and say, right? Um, I mean, there's a, a wonderful book called uh, Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's older, um, but it's a good book. And I know... Um, uh, actually, I don't know. I won't say their name because I don't know if it's public information, but we have a friend, Greg, um, who is currently working on a book actually about omniscience um, or not omniscience, rather uh, omnipotence and why that's not a great idea. Um, and they will be on the podcast to talk about that with us. Uh, but that's in the future. 
but yeah, so I, I just want to point that out that like become aware of the paradigm, like you're saying, and just at least acknowledge if you want to hold those ideas, that's fine. Uh, the church has done it for a long time, but just acknowledge where they came from and be honest in that. And then also another, you know, within the thing you're talking about Plato and Plato is, um, has the big thing where like the soul is the most important thing in the body, right. Is separate. Um, which is a lot of evangelical theology. And one thing that I think is funny, uh, and this is going to make me sound like an asshole and so forgive me, but, um, there's kind of like within some deconstruction circles, this move to be like, Hey, the Gnostics are super cool. Um, and I, so like, I get it. I like the Gnostic gospels, like the gospel of Thomas is awesome, blah, 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 whatever. But like evangelicals are already fucking Gnostics. <laughs> like they already are your whole thing about like the soul is what matters. And it's the beautiful ethereal thing that floats off into space when you die to be with God and, you know, sing Hillsong songs for the rest of your life. That's straight Gnosticism, bro. Like the idea that your body is evil and the world is evil. And the only thing that matters is your soul. That's Gnosticism. And that's what evangelical Christianity teaches. <laughs> You're already a Gnostic. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the, and I think I loved your bit about, you know, the, the difference between Eastern and Western thought, the uh, soteriological versus the, I don't remember exactly what word you used, but I had it. Sophiology. Yeah, sophiology. Uh, Sophia, the, you know, wisdom, uh, which wisdom personified as female in scripture, boom roasted. Um, so yeah, which is about how to live now, um, which is really cool. But before we get to that and like what salvation is, um, I have two questions I want to ask you about like atonement stuff. Is that fair? Yeah, man, I'll do my best. You've got my curiosity peak. Cool. All right. So first one is about going, you know, the idea of e eternal life. Um, and I'm going to operate out of the assumption that eternal life means um, living forever um, in heaven consciously with God. Uh, that idea fucking terrifies me. And I want to know if it scares you as well. And if not, why? No, it's, it, it totally scares me. I mean, I just think the idea, well, of course, where I've gone with it is uh, I'd, I'd have to get funky with all the places my mind has gone about possibilities. Um, the, the idea of, of course, we're, we are in three dimensions, right? We are within time uh, and our inherent concept of time uh is so radically limited um so the only and we can't not think within time um and so the idea of endlessness uh i don't know if you saw uh oh shit the the good what was it called that that show um oh my god i can't the good place the good place right are you about the to good give, place well it's been out long enough you can yeah oh my god yeah this is just know if, if you haven't watched that if show if you haven't watched a good watch place it. just 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 uh mute us for the next three minutes but one of the things when they get to in the good place it's about the afterlife and when they get to heaven there's very few people there but all the people there are completely miserable and their minds are numb uh, and what they recognize is that the concept of endlessness of bliss is absolutely awful uh and so one of the things that they create that actually uh allows the ability to be present and enjoy 
is that at some point you can walk through this gateway to be annihilated and ultimately to cease existing and that your energy will then create good energy for those that are still living, but you, your consciousness ceases to exist. And the option for people to cease existing uh, creates profound liberation and the capacity to be present. Um, That's the best I can do. (laughs) I think the, the, the philosophers behind the good place uh, I think are, are nailing that. It, what my hope would be, it would be something more transcendent. And then I've heard everything from, you know, there's the uh, from reincarnation to the to the capacity, not just to reincarnation, which is kind of inherent in this system, is that you're still trying to get better and improve, and it's kind of a hierarchical evolutionary m- model uh, to uh, this notion that we get to experience choose uh you know that we are these eternal souls that are on this grand adventure and we are in the space where we get to choose the next life uh to have a deeper experience of of what it means to be fully human and fully alive i've heard so many perspectives and of course none of us knows but so that's my long answer and my short answer it's within the concept of time it's terrifying uh and uh or unappealing. Uh, but where I rest ultimately is, uh, I don't know. And, um, I acknowledge my finitude and I just trust that hopefully that shit's good, uh, and, uh, not bad. Uh, and, and that's my dissertation. No, what I, about I you? Like- yeah. What about you? Yeah, I like it. And I will, I'll answer what I think right now. And it's just, this is my speculation um, or what I think sounds nice to me right now and like could be completely wrong because again, we don't have access to these sort of things. Um, But for me, I, you know, I'll start with the basis of like the doctrine of theosis, um, which was very popular within the early church. It's still very popular within like more Eastern forms of uh, Christianity for whatever reason. uh, The Western church doesn't like it. It's bad. Um, But theosis is essentially just this idea of like, becoming divine essentially um basically like you know jesus i mean as even jack was to say becoming like jesus that's the idea but like you you eventually get to a point where you fully embody that um and or you can talk about like you know reunited with the divine fully or something like that so for me what i'm kind of hopeful for is that that kind of reunification and a metaphor that I actually really love, and I get this from Thich Nhat Hanh and from Buddhism, um, is that of like a wave in the ocean, where the ocean is the ocean, right? Um, and the ocean makes waves, and the wave is unique, it's individual, it's its own thing, but then eventually the wave crashes and returns to the ocean where it came from, right? Like a wave can't say to the ocean, I am not water. <laughs> um, and so for me, I kind of hope it's like that. Um, just, you know, I think about Adam and how, you know, within the Genesis narrative, the idea is that Adam is this dirt creature that God, you know, makes out of the dirt and then gives God's ruach, uh, she, you know, she gives her ruach to Adam and that ruach is what animates Adam. Yeah. Um, and then when, you know, Adam dies, the ruach leaves, Right. I mean, they even say that like about Jesus, like when Jesus died, Jesus gave up his spirit. 
the the ruach left the yeah. animating thing but also you know in hebrew scriptures they talk about ruach is like more than just that thing that animates you it's it's the thing that animates all things it's the wind it's you know whatever and so for me it's like okay well if i have this divine ruach in me um then when i die that thing returns back to the source where it came from yeah it's so, it's so um, interesting I, i'm sorry go ahead man i interrupted no you. yeah no you're good i i like that and like i'll say one more weird thing um because i fall into a category of what's called um philosophically idealism okay and i like personal idealism because that adds a nice christian tinge to it people like keith ward um but the idea is that um consciousness um and experience is uh primary and universal and uh, rather than material matter so uh, instead of matter or, or consciousness arriving out of matter which is what the materialists say um it's the other way around material arises out of consciousness and so consciousness is primary and so I like to talk about people as uh, <laughs> the universe becoming conscious of itself. You are an, ex an experience that the universe is having. The universe is having the Greg experience. The universe is having the Josh experience. The universe is having the Noel, my wife experience, whatever. Um, and so that idea of this like consciousness, you know, dying and returning back to that source, that consciousness. Um, is kind of uh for me like that's i like that <laughs> and that doesn't mean it's right you know no but of course I like not it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well yeah I, I think that's 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 the the you know again this freedom that we have to explore ideas and acknowledge our finitude and our subjectivity uh the danger is i think when uh we begin to be terrified of questioning and so I think we explore these things. And, and the, the wild thing is, is how much resonance and then overlap what you're just describing has with the heart of Hinduism, which is uh, that there's the Atman and the Brahman, that the, the Atman is your individual soul and the Brahman uh, is the great divine. And they say uh, when the, but the Atman is derived expressed from the brahman and so in hinduism when this when a person dies the atman is reabsorbed into the brahman like a drop back into the ocean um and and, and you begin to see these same uh, themes and this is what strikes me about the wisdom traditions or the mystic traditions of uh, sufi islam uh and judaism and uh mystic christianity and buddhism and all of these uh, traditions, they begin to sound once it's 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 hard to to disentangle the messages because they sound so similar uh, when you get to the mystics. Um, and and it's because I think they're experiencing a reality that is much uh, more e egoless, ego free. Uh, when the ego gets a hold of any religion, it's, it's, it's inherently us versus them who's inside and out. And uh, when we begin to be free from ego, uh, then this insider and outsider uh, dogma uh, evaporates. And that's when I hear uh, Rumi, the Sufi Muslim uh, poet, uh, saying that I, uh, you know, that, that, that Christ is the flute and I'm being played through the Christ. And these and, and and he's a Muslim, uh, and and describing Christ gorgeously, 
and 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 you begin to see uh, this this, and, and that's what I see the, the the threads of the mystics and the the wisdom traditions and all of these places begin to articulate things so elegantly and seamlessly, which then takes us to, I think, a much broader understanding of salvation. Uh, I I really do think the salvation as an evacuation plan for the next life, as a fire insurance, as how to make sure we're going to heaven, is inherently born of ego. Because ultimately, it's how do I save my bacon? How do I save my ass in this shit show? And so once we begin to uh, let go of ego, it begins to be uh, much more about a broader understanding of what it means to be fully human now uh, and what it means to be fully loving now. Uh, And the question is no longer, how do I get mine out of a scarcity mindset? but it's resting in abundance and beginning to say, how do I love fully? And so salvation, and this is where I think there is some beautiful resonance more with the Eastern perspective of sophiology, because it's about fullness of life now. Now, listen, you can ego, you can take sophiology and ego the shit out of it and make it just as weaponized as soteriology. Uh, But I do think inherent in sophiology is an invitation to what it means to be fully alive now. Um, and that, I think, is a, a more beautiful expression of what salvation is. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, all of these different theological perspectives that have, have evolved uh, since the Reformation are an invitation to begin to question what it means that, that Jesus died and rose again. And, and, and even more than that, what you described earlier, and this is where we go to, uh, instead of original sin, we go to original blessing which the Franciscans are so brilliant at, and Richard Rohr embodies so much in his writing, uh, that that the idea is original blessing. And then from there they go to salvation is in the incarnation, as you described earlier, uh, and and not in the death and resurrection. I actually had a, a priest friend that I worked with for, for years. Uh, her name was Susan. She was a, a genius. And she she lamented that the primary symbol of the church was the cross, uh, that the primary symbol of the church was this Roman to- torture device. And she said that she wishes that the primary symbol was the loaves and the fishes uh, because it was this beautiful concept of God taking our finite offering. And this is what I see in the concept of co-creation, that God taking our finite offering like that little boy did to Jesus with the loaves and fishes, and then multiplying it into a feast to feed thousands. <clears throat> this is a little too much inside information, but when I went, I, I led a pilgrimage to the Holy Land uh, with, and we actually walked from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee, and we had all these people. And we finally got to Jerusalem. Uh, the classic thing you do once you get to Jerusalem, of course, is get a tattoo. Uh, and so uh, when I went there, everyone was getting the Roman cross. And most of the other pilgrims were getting crosses. <clears throat> this was not a mandate to, to get a tattoo. But I actually have a tattoo of the loaves and fishes uh, on my body uh, based on this concept of that being, I think, a, a much more gorgeous symbol. E- either you have the manger as the symbol of the incarnation or the loaves and fishes uh, which I think calls into question our inherent assumptions about Jesus and his mission uh, and his purpose. Uh, it takes us out of Plato 
uh, and and back into what I think that Jesus was embodying uh, in his time and uh, in, in what he he taught and embodied. Yeah, no, I I I mean I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, and I'll I'll comment a few things, and then I have one more question I want to ask you about atonement because it's just stuck on my mind before we wax eloquently about salvation. But <laughs> um, yes, one thing that hmm, dang it, now I'm going to be thrown off. Um, how do I want to do this? All right, well I'll just I'll just say a few things about that and then. Uh, go from there. But so a few things that come to mind when we talk about salvation, um, based off what you're just saying, the embodiment piece is huge to me. Um, one of my most difficult and frustrating things that I found when being a pastor, and this applies to me as well, not just to the other people. So I'm not, you know, this isn't Josh on his soapbox. This is just like, I don't understand, uh, was this deep lack of transformation. We were giving just these ideas and talking about how wonderful heaven's going to be when we die and all this kind of stuff. But then like the fucking homeless people down the street, they're like, well, that's really great for when I die. But what about right now? And I was asking myself the same thing. Like, where is this peace that passes understanding? Where is this uh, a life abundantly? You know, where is where are these things that Jesus talked about and promised? Because it's sure as hell not coming right now in this transactional understanding of things. Um, but I think that stemmed from this idea of salvation as something that happens in the future and not right now. Whereas actually, I think you're right to point out that salvation, at least in my perspective, um, is something that we live into currently. We're invited in each present moment, each passing moment to live into salvation now. Um, so salvation isn't just something that happens in a split second, but rather salvation uh, is a, pr a process. It's our, to steal words from our intro, it's our journey of becoming. <laughs> We're constantly becoming in this uh, paradigm of salvation. Um, and also it, 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 some other things too, when we talk about salvation that um, it came to mind as you were speaking is one, um, like how hyper-individualistic our uh, culture and society is. Where salvation, when you, I mean, you talk about the Israelite people, when they're talking about salvation and coming out of the promise and all this kind of stuff, it's not individual. It's like everybody. It's, it's a very communal thing. And so this is one thing I think liberation theology like screams from the rooftops that's so beautiful. It's like my salvation isn't efficacious until your salvation is efficacious. We're all in this together. Um, our salvation, my salvation is wrapped up with yours. My liberation is wrapped up with yours, right? I mean, we've had Angela Parker and Alma both tell us that white supremacy is harmful to white people as well, and that it's an evil thing that we need liberated from as well. Um, and so that idea of salvation as communal and not just individual uh, comes to mind. And then also something that comes to mind, and this is something I've been wrestling with more recently, is what does salvation look like from a non-anthropomorphic perspective? Um, or anthropocentric, sorry, not anthropomorphic, anthropocentric, meaning human-centered. Uh, because if you, you know, read any of the science literature, um, things aren't looking too great for the human race 
you know, there's a very good possibility that we're going to be wiped out. It's going to well, be and six. we haven't been around that long. The whole idea that the yeah, entire no, universe <laughs> is based on our existence is a little fucking arrogant. Just a whisper. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. What happened, you know, the however many billions of years prior to humans showing up on the scene at this little blip. Boop. There we are. And also uh, the Anthropocene, which is something we talk about Timothy Beale about, um, is this fact that human beings now have a greater impact on the environment than the environment itself. And uh, the sixth great extinction that scientists are predicting could happen anywhere between 100 to like 300 years from now where humans don't exist anymore. It's going to be a first time a great extinction happened because the species that started it is extincting that's not the right word. Is wiping them themselves out. We're dude, to be the I like cause extincting. of our own extinction. Extincting. extincting. I like it, dude. You're, yeah, but it is. Yeah, the idea that <laughs> we're going to wipe the, ourselves the, out. The irony that we are the, as far as we know, at least on our planet, the first that, that we are the universe come to consciousness, and with this gift of consciousness that we have, actually have the capacity to wipe ourselves out. Yeah. Uh, that that we are using this gift uh, so short sightedly. Uh, to harm ourselves. And I, I know in that inherent is shame. And I'm not meaning to shame because I do believe within each one of us, we have the capacity. We're hardwired for compassion and we're hardwired for violence. Uh, and, but, but I do think if we s survive as a species, I, I, I really believe the next, and we've talked about this before, Josh, the next evolutionary movement forward is not an enlarged cranium uh, but it is going to be an evolution of consciousness, which acknowledges that we are totally connected. And in that space, in that connection, the violence will diminish. The, the, the idea of categorical separation by race or sexual orientation or uh, gender or religion, all of that will begin to evaporate because we realize we're all utterly connected. That if, if we don't begin to separate, begin to heal from this egoic uh, delusion of separation, we will wipe ourselves out. Um, and, and okay, I, I will say this in terms of why I give my energy to this podcast and why I give energy to my 50 years of career in ministry. It's because if there's any little bit I can do, one grain of sand at a time, to move the ball down the field, to heal the delusion of separation and egoic uh, uh, isolation, and begin to grow us in awareness of our inherent uh, connection, and that that we are the, the, the that we are inherently about uh, connection. And that the nature of the universe is love, in the words of Teilhard de Chardin, that the, the, the nature of the universe is love and we are the universe come to consciousness, that if we can move the ball down the field, even a fucking millimeter, then I'll feel like my life has been well lived. Um, and so th this, this is not uh, esoteric brain candy. Uh, what we're doing on this, why we have our conversations, why you have a heartbeat to do this, why you work a long ass day canning shit uh, and then come home and why I am doing all of this stuff with second breath that I love, but it many days stresses the shit out of me and exhausts me. Why do it? And then come back at the end of the day at nine o'clock at night now. And we're having this conversation. It's because ultimately that our hearts and and I and I'm speaking for you because I feel like it, it's congruent. But tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think I am. Is because we're trying to move the ball down the field, 
to really genuinely bring an evolution of consciousness towards connection, love, and healing because the stakes are that fucking high. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent that, and that's, yeah. <laughs> and to the point about salvation, I think that is uh, showing people what salvation is. Um, it's coming to the, the awareness of, of how reality is. Um, which again, can't just be human centric. It involves all of creation. Salvation has to include all of creation, right? Is our God that small that God is only saving us puny humans? <laughs> I mean, maybe I can see why that could be comforting, but I think God is bigger than that. Um, and the entire, all of creation, right? To speak biblically, all of creation is going to be saved, uh, but creation involves not just the planet Earth. <laughs> um, it's it's the whole shebang. So yeah, I, I think of that, but also I think the evolution of consciousness thing is is interesting and important. And I mean, I think that's ultimately what, when I talk about salvation, that's what I mean. Um, but <laughs> before, all right. I want to, can I put a pin in that and just ask you one more question? <laughs> You're I, talking. I really, I feel. I will say that was, we fucking landed the plane though. I, I feel like we landing did. the plane on the understanding of salvation as an evolution of human consciousness away yes. from the delusion of separation to a, a, an evolving genuine understanding of our connection, which is justice, peace, uh, the, the, the anti-oppression, the, 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 the validation and affirmation of identity. Uh, of people and really experiencing uh, love and compassion from the inside out. I just feel like naming that salvation. It's not just mm -hmm. the next life. It's not a salvation. It's not an evacuation evacuation plan for the next life. It is right here and now. And this is our work. Okay, naming that. Yeah. Put a pin in it. Back to your question. And we're gonna come back to it because I I want to talk about that and and riff on it because that's huge and I think it's a massive paradigm shift. Um, but there's just this question that so at theology beer camp tony jones was present and tony uh like threw this question at me in a way that only tony can <laughs> and i mean that with the most uh love and respect i it, tony is a, a an awesome dude he's been very helpful to me um but he basically i was i was doing an atonement uh session and um he was telling me like dude like one thing about more progressive people and tony himself is progressive so he's lumping himself in this category is when people are asked about the atonement they will not talk about the cross they'll just like bypass it and just like skirt it basically and talk about something else and so tony was like and maybe that's fine but he was saying like what do you think um happened on the cross did something actually happen on the cross through the death of jesus uh, was like, is there an ontological difference now that because Jesus died on the cross, something ontologically, you know, is now different? The universe, the cosmos is now a different place ontologically because of Jesus. Or is it simply, and I simply is not the right word because I don't mean it to sound um, uh, dismissive because I probably fall into this next category I'm going to name, maybe. Um, or is it more so just like a phenomenological thing that changed? Was it a shift of perspective uh, that the cross offers? Um, and so I was just interested if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. 
I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you progressive. No, you... listen, man. <laughs> I, I believe, and first of all, I think inherent in that question is a unnecessary dichotomy uh, of uh, a perspective change versus a ontological change. Is there, can we say that's such a thing? Um, so I've just, A, call that into question. And with calling that into question, uh, do I believe that Jesus died to pay off the white hot wrath of God? No, I don't believe that. In fact, I think that is an inherently uh, dangerous and toxic perspective. Uh, full stop. Uh, do I believe in the death of Jesus, this innocent, uh, man who willingly gave himself as he was being nailed to the cross, say, father, forgive them. They know not what they do and gave himself that inherent in that compassionate other centric love when an innocent was being uh harmed uh under oppressive uh this oppressive system both theologically and philosophically and empirically or not both all of those things i believe that the death of jesus there was a transformation i believe that there was a healing note of love and compassion that rung out into the universe i don't believe it was just a philosophical one of con con concept i believe it was an ontological one that brought uh, a a healing uh it, it, well an invitation of healing and justice and beauty uh, to the universe. And of course, all we know in the universe is our little micro baby blue marble uh, in our tiny little solar system. But I do believe that there was an ontological shift that rippled out with the death of Christ, with the death of Jesus. Uh, now, I feel like it manifests predominantly in a conceptual change and in a, in a, an invitation to change a paradigm. But I believe it was both ontological and conceptual. Um, and uh, how exactly ontologically it laid bare, I have no idea. Uh, but I believe it happened. And I know conceptually I can begin to wax, not eloquently, but as a 50-year-old Episcopal priest with lots of opinions and blather on, which I won't do. But I do believe that conceptually uh, the invitation. I, so, so I don't, while I, while I agree, I genuinely believe in and support original blessing. And I also believe the primary emphasis of soteriology is the incarnation. I don't negate the cross and I certainly don't negate the resurrection. And I'm not going to debate about how many hours in the grave and the physicality. And I'm not going to debate, uh, about, uh, uh, precision, uh, in fact, and you know, exactly what happened. Were there 5,000 that were fed or 4,000 or 3,000 at the miracle? I don't believe that, uh, it's, it's, I, I don't really don't give a shit about, um, arguing about, uh, precision, uh, with the, 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 the story of Christ and, and his death and resurrection. But I do believe inherent in the message of Christianity is, 
ontological impact and radical conceptual paradigm transformation that can lead to the healing of the world. And it's not the only message, but I believe the message that's in the gospel is critical. Uh, it's a critical ingredient for the healing of the world. Yeah, beautiful. And here you and I are talking about this guy, Jesus, who died on a cross. So it had some kind of fucking impact. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So to, to you know, um, you know, when I uh, was, you know, asking Trip this question on the side, he basically was like, look, Josh, here's the best. Just say this when people ask you. The cross accomplished everything it was intended to accomplish. <laughs> like, that's a good. That's real. a good seminarian. That's a good, good dude with his PhD, man. That's a dude who's right. walked the uh, walked the academic line. Right. Well done, Trip. And also, I'll say this too, because um, this was a new perspective for me. And then I'll shout out the person who introduced me to it, because um, I asked them the same question as you, and they were saying, as a process thinker, each person, all of us contribute and change like things ontologically in every moment in every moment of becoming we are we are all contributing to um the universe as it grows to is god this or, kind of stuff. is this or is or yeah it was tom <laughs> <laughs> you caught it out well done and i know tom tom listens to the show uh faithfully and thank you so much tom for doing so um you know i know you've heard me say it a million times but uh your work has been so helpful and influential to me um in ways that are non-calculable if that's a word uh i can't yeah put it to words how many people it is but tom was saying jesus is no different like of course jesus changed things ontologically right <laughs> in a very unique way as jesus as the christ um and here we are talking about uh jesus and the even though sure the christian faith has done a lot of really bad evil fucked up things there's also a lot of good and beauty that has come out of it and you know a, an inspired movement an entire movement rather was inspired by the person jesus of nazareth and that is a massive ontological shift <laughs> um so yeah those are those are some thoughts um but yeah let's i'll i'll switch back to the salvation bit um Unless there's anything you want to add to that uh, cross stuff, um, no, dude. I think I think I think that's it, and I think that just it it takes us out of trying to nest ourselves in platonic, uh, yeah, assumption and the begin paradigm to is different again. Everything's yeah. paradigm, and once you begin to and and paradigms in in effect, where paradigms are invisible until there's new data that begins to poke through our existing lens and open us to a new perspective. And so uh, in, in the West, especially evangelicalism, it's such a limited paradigm that keeps us stuck in these assumptions. So I, I think that I, I feel like at least for on, on our perspective, uh, we can identify those uh, assumptions and begin to now broaden the question to what is salvation. I think we're already diving into that, but I think, we're free from trying to say penal substitutionary atonement or getting into heaven is what salvation is. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And uh, to get back, you know, to how we were talking earlier, 
for me, salvation is um, salvation was the uh, realization uh, or the the awakening to um, this idea that not idea, but the reality that everything is deeply interconnected and interrelated, um, that uh, God and myself are not separate that Greg, you and I are not separate, but deeply interconnected, um, that myself and creation is not separate, but deeply interconnected. Um, you know, I, dang it. I, I feel bad because I forget who said this. Um, but there's just this idea and I'm pretty sure I, I read it within Thich Nhat Hanh, but like I am because you are, <laughs> um, I think that is, is, you know, a part of recognizing that, that connection, the, the interconnectedness of all things, the interbeing. Um, I think quantum physics speaks this way. Um, I think just as we keep learning about uh, the universe and, and those kind of things speaks this way. Um, but also, I mean, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, I think when we can touch deeply the present moment, um, and acknowledge that we are alive, that we're here, we're in this moment. If we can touch that deeply, then we can live into the kingdom of God in the here of now, in the here and now. The kingdom of God is also this place where that separation, that illusion of separateness is gone. It doesn't exist there. Um, and so that's why I still like N.T. Wright's language of this already not yet kingdom, right? Um, because sometimes, right, we are very poor. We don't have eyes to see. the. Um, you know, that everything is interconnected and other times we do. Um, and when we can live into that and actually ask ourselves, okay, how would my life be different if I genuinely believed and embraced the idea that everything is, inter is interconnected? How would that change my life? Living into that, I think is salvation. Um, I think eternal life, uh, is about eternal. So eternal, like by definition is timeless. Eternal is not everlasting. Everlasting is a different word than eternal. Eternal life, eternal means transcends time. And so it can't be forever because that it transcends that. So I think eternal life is actually more so about a quality of life than it is a quantity of life. And so I think Jesus is inviting us into a better way to be human, right? Um, you know, here's one thing that I'll still be deeply confessional about within my Christian faith is that I believe Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And that Jesus, one of the things Jesus did was come to show us what it means to be truly human. And we've talked about this before. I think sin, we don't sin because we're humans. I think sin dehumanizes us. <laughs> um, and C.S. Lewis talked this way too. N.T. Wright talks this way. Um, but sin dehumanizes us because it breaks us out of the reality of the universe that we are deeply connected to each other to God into creation. Um, and so Jesus lived as a quote unquote perfect human because Jesus fully embraced what it means to be human, not living in that separation, but living as what one with the father um, and inviting people into that quality of life in the here and now. Uh, because Jesus was like going around and offering people eternal life and such before homeboy ever died on the cross. And people got shitty with him, like, who are you to be doing that? And he's like, this is what it is. <laughs> um, so I think about that. Yeah, go for it. No, I just, I think that that really resonates when you, when you talk to a lot of, and for me, even when I was an evangelical, you know, Jesus's life 
was fine. His teaching was good, but ultimately, look, it came down to the handful of minutes he was on the cross. That's the real deal. Like, look, it was about, he's paying the price for me to be saved. So his life and teaching, that's all nice, but really the real deal was him paying for my sins so that I could get to heaven. What, what a, what a limited, uh, perspective, what a tiny view, uh, of the life and teaching and embodiment of Christ. Instead, I think, what does it mean to, for us to dig into the experience of, of Jesus as a wisdom teacher? And understanding Jesus as a wisdom teacher uh, is in no way minimizing the concept of the Christ we might be more familiar with, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But it's realizing that he was also inviting us to experience fullness of life now. Again, I believe the idea of uh, an evacuation plan for the next life that Jesus died mainly to get us to heaven is primarily born of uh, platonic assumptions. And he certainly wasn't focused on that. He was focused on what it means to be fully alive in the present moment. I'm not negating the next life, but I am saying that uh, I don't think it was primary emphasis. So what does it mean for us with salvation to realize this is an invitation to live fully now? And this is where, when we invite uh, uh, these authors, Jennifer Garcia, you know, or, or I'm sorry, all of the, the different authors we've had on recently, uh, that the invitation is, is an experience to love fully, to uh, embrace, to honor, uh, to engage and what does it mean for us to experience fullness of life, giving people the deepest experience of belonging now in the present tense? And, and I would say that that's what we're about. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nuance that. I'm not nuancing that in the sense of I really believe that all of our call is to experience, uh, uh, to, to care for the least of these. All of our call is to experience and work for uh, honoring all. But, but I will nuance it this way. In the Episcopal Church, and this is kind of a classic liberal perspective, especially a uh, white liberal perspective, that unless you're marching on the front lines uh, of protests uh, and movements, then you are a second-class Christian. I believe the way that the kingdom evolves is a profound commitment to dissolve the delusion of separation, to honor everyone. And that means, listen, for, for and I and I just I have friends that that still struggle with this. If 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 you're struggling with the idea of a, a trans person, uh you you that you give a shit about their pronouns uh that if you're if you're if you if you're trying to say look there's only two or you know in the old days it was the idea there's only uh adam and eve you know and we know scientifically that's not what's happening that if 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 your primary thing is trying to guard an old system to protect yourself and that you're then attacking others and trying to say don't uh, identify yourself in this way because I can't accept you, then I really do think you're out of step uh, with the heart of the evolutionary movement of the gospel. 
our inherent work is to heal the delusion of separation. And that is for uh, anytime you see that in race, anytime you see that in religious discrimination, anytime you see that with uh, uh, LGBTQ oppression, that's our work. Now, how that work evolves, that is the gorgeous mosaic of where each of us might evolve. You know, I do believe that there are those of us that are called to march on the frontline protests. There are those of us that are called to do this full time with technicolor anti-oppression work. All of us should be involved in anti-oppression, but how that evolves, I think, is as complex and as gorgeous as a mosaic piece of art. So, for example, when I think of my favorite poet, Mary Oliver, Mary Oliver pretty much did not like to be around people. And so she spent about 95% of her life walking in the woods by herself, observing nature, and then writing poetry about it, and then coming home to her wife. And and a lot of Mary Oliver's poet, poetry is actually very erotic. Uh, people don't like to focus on that. They just like to focus on her nature poetry. But she has some gorgeous erotic poetry about her relationship with her wife and partner. Uh, but then that that calling to be by herself in nature and write about it transformed the world. So I think the the invitation in the kingdom of God is not to be necessarily some technicolor activist in terms of our how our cultural content calls it, but I think it's to be in touch with your unique way of being in the world. And what I mean by that is your unique way of giving and receiving love and what light your heart on fire, and then to live into that. That's salvation in the present tense. That's what it means to live. You don't have to be a nerd like me or Josh that gives a shit about reading all these books uh, and want to talk about it. But one friend of mine, I have a dear friend that does not like people, profound introvert, but loves animals. And so they decided that their their call their their way of their salvation their way of moving the ball down the field was they actually went to all of these uh kennels and uh places where these dogs and cats were going to be put to sleep and they would adopt these dogs and cats that, that were in the last legs of their life that were going to die soon she adopted them brought them home and then nurtured them and cared for them in their last months of life so that they could die in an environment of love compassion and security that's the fucking shit like that's moving the ball down the field is that person going to get a cnn expose on hero of the year never but i do think that person in their unique way of being is moving the ball evolutionary down the field to healing the delusion of separation from co the cosmos from one another and inviting us to experience fullness of life and that's what i believe salvation is I'm not negating the next life, but I'm saying if we want to experience salvation as a verb, then it is us embodying our unique way of being, which means our unique way of giving and receiving love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> amen to that. And what I, you know, what I would, I don't know what I'm, what I'm hearing from you and what, what you're describing, I think is, is dead on is that this idea of salvation is deeply, deeply participatory. That salvation is not just something that happens to us, like, oh, we're we're given this gift of salvation, right? We we say the magic prayer and now, oh, boom, we're saved, something like that. But rather, it's deeply participatory and within an open and relational framework, which is how I operate. Um, 
God is active and present in and through all moments, in and through all things, alluring us, calling us uh, towards things that are good and beautiful and true. And so as people who are conscious and have the ability to respond to this alluring of God, I think that ability to respond and give into um, the things that are good and beautiful and true that bring about a better world that bring about the kingdom of God. Right. If I want to go back to some of my, um, you know, more Christianese language uh, is just that invitation to participate with God, that literally we are the hands and feet of Christ and that um, our salvation is something that we get to participate in. It is deeply relational experience with the divine. And that requires us to do the difficult inner work, to figure out, to live out of the core of who we are, who we truly are, like you're saying. What is that thing that brings us deep gladness? What is that gift that we have to give the world uh, to do that and do it well and participate with God? Um, and that means like, <clears throat> you know, again, to go back to like when I used to teach teenagers, this is, you know, one thing I'll talk about them is like, okay, so it's fine to think about the afterlife, right? If we want to think about heaven. Um, but if, if Jesus, the prayer that Jesus gave us uh, in it, he prayed, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then probably we should do that shit. <laughs> so part of our salvation is also living into what does it mean that, that heaven is present here on earth? Um, like that God's will is being done. So in heaven, if there's no violence, if we're not killing each other, then maybe we should stop fucking doing that here. Right. Um, if in heaven, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, there's no racism, there's no sexism, there's no, uh, homophobia there. None of those things exist. And probably we shouldn't be doing it here. Bring heaven to earth, right? Live into it here and now. And again, it's this deeply participatory thing that we're being invited to participate in um and i think that is salvation we are are constantly living into our salvation paul says to work out your salvation with right with fear and trembling if you want to throw that on there so paul is even saying salvation is an active participatory thing it's not some flip a switch now i'm saved uh kind of deal right um it's not about that and i think it requires you to get out of that framework of, am I going to heaven or hell? Um, and I think for me, I might've swung kind of too far in the opposite direction. Cause I'm in a point right now where like, I don't even know what I think about the afterlife. I have ideas like I shared earlier, but like, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I would say I don't actually know this, but I would say I know that like hell's not a thing. So I'm not worried about that. Uh, but I don't know what happens when I die. I don't know what heaven is. And so for me to be so focused on a life that I have no access to instead of the one that God has gifted me right now in this present moment just became asinine. And so those questions didn't matter as much. And I want to know how can I live in each and every single moment present you know, giving into cooperating with whatever language you like, the allure of God, who is calling me into things that are deeply creative and deeply beautiful and true, and that bring about 
you know, what we talk about is the kingdom of God. Um, I can give my life to that, but like saying a magic prayer so that when I die, go somewhere else, like mm, not interested. It's boring. Yeah. And yeah, it I, justifies any other kind of shit I want to do in the here and now. I can right. still be racist. I can still kill people. I can still rape the planet. I can still engage in war. I can still do all of those things because at least I'm going to heaven when I die because I said a magic prayer. So yeah, Willy Wonka's, <laughs> Willy, Willy Wonka's golden ticket, man. You got your uh, indulgence, uh, which, again, is the history of the church. Get a jail-free card. And I do think, again, any fear-based system, we've talked about this before, any fear-based system I reject out of hand. This is not about, because I think fear-based systems inherently invite us to egoic self-protection and and self-awareness. And that's just not what we're about. That this is not about how do you save your fucking ass? You're, what, what if you are okay? What if you're okay? What if this this life is it or next life you're going to be fine? So what does it mean then to not worry about yourself uh, and to actually then live for the for the present and and in that i think again going back to my point about mary oliver and salvation and the kingdom of god and we've talked about before the kingdom of god we talked about not so much a place you go to but a place you see from it's a new way of seeing everything and to me it's a new way of seeing everything which heals the egoic delusion of separation and invites us to our unique way of being in the world and the way that lives out there was uh, one guy that came through second breath, cool guy, man. He was a, I think he was a lawyer, career guy, but he would spend some of his weekends down uh, with prison ministry. He would go and help uh, serve communion, I think, at prison. And he was noticing that uh, he, he he did some analysis of some statistics of the local prison and saw that the people that when they got out of prison, the people that had someone there to pick them up uh that cared for them uh would rarely go back to prison but the people that they got out of prison there was no one there to pick them up the statistics of going back to prison were through the roof so this guy saw that and so he started this whole what we call ministry i just think it's called living alive that would make sure that no one that came out of our local prison would ever not be picked up but actually be picked up and have a support structure of compassion and care uh, not just their parole officer but a support structure of compassion and care because he wanted them to thrive and feel loved the the statistics pragmatically of the lives he impacted by this work were staggering and and he, he that's all it was he just volunteered there on the weekends and when he retired gave his time to caring for these people that were getting out of prison and that's moving the ball down the field i'm just it's 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 in adopting the sick dogs and cats that are going to die soon and allowing them to be loved in a dignified way it is picking up the person from prison that doesn't have anyone else that gives a shit about them to show them that you give a shit about them and that they're valuable and loved and each of us, the work of salvation, if we're going to say work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's not work out to make sure that your ass is going to heaven. It's work out your unique way of receiving and giving love. What makes you come alive? What's, what, what song, what movie, what poet uh, touches your heart? What piece of artwork, what, what uh, 
act of looking on the news, social injustice that breaks your heart uniquely. What is it that touches you? And then you begin to lean into that and say, what can I do? And I guarantee you this, as soon as you begin to lean into that and say, I want to make a difference, there'll be opposition there saying, you can't do jack shit. Who are you to write a book? Who are you to start a ministry to care for people that are released from prison? Who are you to go adopt these animals? You know, you don't have time. And there's always going to be opposition and resistance. But the kingdom of God advances, salvation evolves and expands when we have the courage to begin to lean into our unique way of giving and receiving love and saying, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Uh, that's how the world's changed. And even with you with this podcast, Josh, I, I mean, you and I are good friends. We've talked a lot. I can't tell you how many times you're like, listener, I, I'm 50, so I've, I'm, I'm an old fucker. Uh, and Josh is younger than me. So, uh, but he, so many times he's like, I, I, I don't know why people want to listen to me. People like people with our Patreon feed, people want to pay uh, to listen to us talk. And, and there's an inherent kind of question of, you know, is that, you know, okay. And here's the wild thing. The, the reason that anyone would want to give any of their resources to support this work is because they believe that it's moving the ball down the field. And Josh, you being fully you in this podcast, me being fully me in this podcast, the hope is this is moving the ball down the field. This is a part of salvation. This is a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God. And, uh, and I can tell you in my own life, and we'll just, you know, I know we're wrapping up on almost two hours here. The, in my own life, Josh, you being your beautiful, tender-hearted, book-reading, brilliant-ass self uh, has so touched my heart in the time of our connection uh, has so inspired me uh, to give my heart in a unique way to continue to evolve the kingdom of God. And it's not because you're making anything happen or presenting or trying to make shit happen. It's just you being authentically you. And that shit is gold. And uh, that's, that's how the kingdom of God advances. So let's just take it from the esoteric, from Anselm and Calvin uh, and Luther, from uh, 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 liberation theology and feminist theology and womanist theology, all of which are gorgeous in their evolution, to Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton and understanding the true self versus the false self and our unique evolution down to the brass tacks of here we are, two dudes at 9.30 at night on the East Coast giving our time to this, you drinking beer, me drinking a little bit of tequila. And why? Because ultimately we're here because our passion is to try to move the ball down the field to advance the kingdom of God, which means we want to heal the delusion of separation and invite people to experience the fact that we are already radically connected with God, with one another and all the cosmos. Shit. Well, fuck yeah, man. <laughs> first that's off, a, that's a, that's a, that we should call that's what we should call this particular episode shit well fuck yeah man i like it and <laughs> <laughs> see how many downloads we get there you go oh <laughs> uh, yeah no I, so i just yeah i i don't know man i i really appreciate it. i'm i'm bad with receiving compliments so forgive me um but yeah i think you named it well uh 
the motivation motivating factor for me has always been to try to help others and help you know push the ball down the the field as you were saying and um as you're speaking too because i know sometimes you know we've been talking about the kingdom of god a lot and there are people who take the this image of the kingdom of god and make it exclusive and i don't think the kingdom of god is exclusive (laughs) i think the kingdom of god is reality and we just fail to see reality clearly which is why i think sight is so common within the pages of scripture they talk about sight all the time right healing the blind and this kind of thing uh, if you have eyes to see whatever and so there's that story um that i think demonstrates this well which is the the jesus talking with the rich uh young ruler right and he's basically like yo jesus what do i do to receive eternal life or to inherit rather is the word he used in internal life and um he's like i you know i keep all the commands i do all the religious shit but like what do i need to do she was like okay well sell all of your things and come with me and the rich young ruler uh walked away sad right i don't think what jesus was doing was excluding rich people (laughs) or this person from the kingdom of god i think rather jesus identified the thing that the rich young ruler's ego hinged on uh which was his wealth And Jesus was saying, because your ego is still tied up in wealth, you will not have eyes to see the kingdom of God. That is the present reality. And I think that finding what it is in our lives, that is our equivalent of, you know, wealth for the rich young ruler. The thing that our ego is so attached to, um, and dying to that, what right? We're called to die to ourselves, die to our ego. Um, and then when we die to that thing and see reality for what it is, the deeply interconnected um, kingdom of kingdom, right? I use kingdom because kingdom has has roots that don't fit well with what we're talking about, the deep, but the, the kingdom of God um, is what reality is. And we just salvation is the ability to wake up to that reality and jesus is calling us to have eyes to see um but each one of us is unique and different and there's that thing that we or maybe many things that we cling to and grasp to that doesn't give us the opportunity to live into the kingdom to live into reality to live into who we are um and sometimes it's the church it's the fucking church that is the thing that is holding us back and i think uh that's been the experience of so many people uh, that listen to this podcast, but um, not always. I don't want to shit on the church completely. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's just something that came to mind. And yeah, right here, we here we are. Here we are. look, We're almost at the, the, almost at the two hour mark. For those of you that are still listening to us, uh, you must be proper rethinking faith fans. So thank you. Yeah, and if your name's Dustin, fuck you. <laughs> Just kidding. That? Only only for one person named Dustin. Sorry. That was a that's an inside joke. There's a person that was intended for. So if okay. you're a Dustin and you don't know me, <laughs> that's not directed at you. It's only Dustin in towards one Dustin. But okay. I know Dustin listened to the end, so that's why I had to say it. 
but it's right, it's Dustin. like a, it's with a heart though you know it's a love dustin you're loved man he's his face is smiling and maybe dustin you're already oh, and he's dying man. yeah and he's gonna call me in five minutes when he's done listening to this episode laughing and be like i love you bro because that's how <laughs> dustin is so you need to meet dustin greg i dude i need to I, even i was outside of that joke so right <laughs> yeah, on yeah everybody is so that's so, probably a bad thing to put in a podcast. Right? <laughs> no, man. But it's kind of like this Easter egg. It's pretty sweet. Um, well, all right. This has been a uh wild Mr. Toad's wild ride from uh understanding uh atonement theories from the earliest days of the church, based in Platonic thought to Anselm to Calvin to uh scapegoat theory to all of these uh perspectives that are broadening us out uh from violence to healing and uh anyway man josh i i feel like i'm i'm beautifully tired i feel like i just uh played a big game of uh like i don't know fucking lacrosse or uh high lie or football or soccer and uh i just soaked in the hot tub now and my muscles are relaxed and um but the invitation ultimately as we always do is what does it mean to fucking live into this? What does it mean to actually create a space that is loving and compassionate? And so as always, brother, great to have these conversations with you. Uh, great that we can have a space where we can not wax eloquent, although I think probably delusionally egoically, I'm sure parts of us think we do, but really to ask the questions and uh, wrestle through this in present in the present tense. Yeah, man. Um, it was fun. And uh, I haven't, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I haven't talked about like atonement stuff for a while. And then I was asked to do that class. And then Trip made me do a freaking podcast interview about it live with a bunch of people. And then you were like, hey, let's do this thing. Uh, so maybe there's something to that. But yeah, this has been uh, just for me deeply. Uh, helpful and like you said i'm i'm relaxed i'm i was pretty tense and sporadic when it started and i feel very much like uh kind of just calm and at peace right now so that's always a good sign um yeah and hopefully listeners if you're still listening um you found this uh to be helpful as well which is always the goal (laughs) is that even if if one person uh finds it helpful and it makes your day better then that's awesome i'm here for it and listener if you if you don't know yet we have a patreon feed now uh the patreon we don't have a soundboard because we're poor but we have (laughs) we can make (laughs) (laughs) but uh patrons we have uh special episodes uh, about once a month we do a uh, it's called happy hours with the s and the parentheses like the rethinking faith and uh we have trip uh fuller join us for those and then we have extra patreon episodes where it's just uh josh and i or maybe another person uh uh waxing uh poetic and gen- geniusly which Very i think is a made up word to- yeah. totes geniusly uh totes. so if you're if you're not a part of uh that join us we'd love to have you a part of that and otherwise can't wait to uh, have you dial in uh next time man because we're gonna have some good shit coming up <laughs> as always yeah <laughs> oh, good deal yeah listeners thank you so much for hanging out today and uh, as always guys go in peace <laughs>